What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, Tuesdays, 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern, on Pacifica Affiliates WXOJLPFM, Northampton, Massachusetts, and KWMD in Kasilof and Anchorage, Alaska. Produced by Freedom Center and the Icarus Project, streaming, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. Thanks for joining us on Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Uh, Today we are speaking with Bradley Lewis about mad pride and mad science. Um, Brad is a professor at New York University's Gallatin School of Individualized Studies. He's a psychiatrist and cultural theorist, and he's author of Moving Beyond Prozac, DSM, and the New Psychiatry, The Birth of Post-Psychiatry. Brad is also an organizer with the um, Icarus Project group at uh, Gallatin School at NYU. So welcome to Madness Radio, Brad Lewis. Thank you, Will. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm I'm a big fan of of your work and uh, very um, happy to sort of be part of your your radio show. Yeah, and you've been doing a lot of really great work um, in New York with the NYU um, group of Icarus Project, a very active group. And I think that the um, the group actually won the Campus um, Serve Community Service Award recently for being like the most active, engaged uh, group on campus. Is that right? That's that. That's right. Yeah, it's very, um, it's very exhilarating. There, there's uh, a lot of um, sort of possibilities for Icarus-style thinking and um, network and sort of um, approaches to psychic difference on campus. A lot of, a lot of kids who come to college have had years of experience with the psychiatric system before they even get here. And uh, some of them are really sort of uh, right to think about it a little bit differently. And you, um, you've been working as a mad ally, helping to create discussions and forums. And you have a class called, um, what, what is the class that you do? It's called Mad Pride, Mad Science. Great. Well, you're a cultural theorist, and, and um, I'm really interested in you know, using your um, research and, and thinking and writing as a way of thinking strategically about the Mad Pride movement and looking at all the different kinds of implications of what is Mad Pride. But maybe we can start um, with telling us a little bit about your own background and how you got interested in this, because I know you're actually trained not only as a cultural theorist, but also as a psychiatrist. Well, I started not really knowing, you know, sort of what I wanted to do, and I, I ended up following the path of biology and medicine and, and specializing in psychiatry, and all sort of a very sort of standard training. It was a time when psychoanalysis was still alive in certain parts of the country. I was in Washington, D.C., and psychoanalysis was still alive, so I, I got more exposure to psychoanalysis than many psychiatrists do today. So when you say psychoanalysis, you mean sort of Freudian-based talk therapy as opposed to the biological neurotransmitter neuroscience approach that that is sort of reigning today. Psychiatry went through a um, real paradigm shift, a real sort of reorganization of the way they think about psychic life and psychic difference in the 80s where it was largely a more psychoanalytic, psychotherapy approach to a much more biological um, neurotransmitter approach. And so I I saw that happening. You were right in the middle of that, it sounds like. I was right in the middle of it, yeah. 
it felt like uh, that was uh, there was there's a joke at the time that, that said that psychiatry went from being a, a brainless psychiatry that it was only focused on the mind to becoming a mindless psychiatry that was only focused on the brain <laughs> and that joke um, actually seemed to me to have a lot of wisdom in it it seemed like it was swinging from one side to the other without really you know, sort of capturing the complexities either way. And so I started taking classes in philosophy, trying to understand the whole mind-body problem. And one thing led to another, and I, I got interested in even the bigger questions about what are social, linguistic, political dimensions of the way we categorize ourselves and each other and the way we think about uh, psychic life and psychic difference. So I ended up getting a degree in cultural theory and applying it back to psychiatry ever since. Now, it seems like the, uh, the mad pride movement or the mad movement is of all the different movements we could talk about, feminism, um, civil rights, uh, black power, the environmental movement, all the different movements out there, the mad pride movement, folks who have been in psychiatric institutions, people who've seen doctors and gotten um, diagnosed with disorders and uh, taking medication or not taking medication or having that whole experience of being a patient, it seems like the movement is really tied up with this question of science. And we talk a lot about science in the movement. And you have a very interesting um, sort of critique of the science that looks at science itself and the assumptions that we make about science. And you talk about it in your book, Moving Beyond Prozac, DSM, and the New Psychiatry. Um, So maybe we should just start with that. Like, what's sort of the general issues that you see in the way that we think about science, and how should we be critiquing that? A lot of the new social movements that uh, sometimes are called identity politics, uh, like you mentioned, all of them have, they're similar in this way, in the sense that uh, the question of science and biology in particular is at the heart of it in the women's movement or in the civil rights movement and in the gay and lesbian movements. There was the people who felt like that, that these groups should be on the margin and should be kept in their place um, often used the language of science to say that they were not only different, they were inferior. So women had inferior moral capacity, inferior mental capacities. Um, there's all this sort of language of Darwinism to suggest that people of different colors were closer to animals, all this garbage that science comes up with that reinforce, you know, social status. And so a, a lot of the movements have then wanted to then sort of use science against science, basically to say that's bad science. You know, if you start saying I'm inferior because I have a different body, um, you've just got bad science and I'm going to use science to prove you wrong and therefore we're all equal. And so science then is this big club that people have been wanting to use to fight the science that was holding people down. And that's, that's been one of the sort of ways that science has been attractive to folks in the social movement. So science kind of becomes a monopoly on what is truth, and then you say, oh, well, we can't let women have the right to vote because they're too emotional and they're too sort of morally inferior, and they don't understand the complexities. Their brains are different. Women's women's um, you know biology is different. And then you say, well, actually, the science says that they're not so different, or the, the science says that uh, blacks aren't less intelligent than than whites. Actually, that's bad science. That racism and sexism are based on uh, kind of phony science. And then the movements champion the accurate science, or the it's sort of a battle for who controls the um, 
the definition of of scientific truth and who sort of gets gets to say what is scientifically um, accurate. But then that strategy has its limits because you're still bowing down to the authority of science and it's easy to mistake that science for some sort of absolute truth and forget that it's always a human product. You know, the world doesn't come with labels on it. Uh, People have to make decisions about how to divide it up and which parts of it to think about and how to study it and all those kinds of things. And so it's, it's desirable many people feel to use science to critique science, but at the same time, if it ends up with uh, uh, over-idealizing science, then you can end up with another set of problems. And that's certainly happening in psychiatry because now the the truth is that it's all about um, neurochemical imbalances, quote-unquote, because that's what's become the most um, quoted science. Well, wasn't the the move from, I guess in the DSM-3, the move away from psychoanalysis and from Freudian talk therapy and the sort of the theories that Freud developed, the move from that to biology and neuroscience, that was all done in the name of making psychiatry more scientific, right? And, and, and Freud is certainly nobody to idealize either. I mean, he, he was like, I mean, in some ways, psychoanalysis and psychotherapy seems charming compared to some of the biopsychiatries, but in, psychoanalysis was also a very patriarchal a hierarchical world that had within it a lot of sort of social mm-hmm. sort of uh, exclusions and, and, and stigmas. And so and so it's not like psychoanalysis is good. Right. Homophobia of homosexuality was considered a disorder or a disease, yeah. Right. Freud always thought of himself as a scientist, but but he didn't do the kinds of quantitative studies that uh, have become now the mark of science. And so the biopsychiatry people use that to say that Freud's stuff is all conjecture and hypothesis and it's worthless unless some sort of quantitative study can be done. And the kinds of things that quantitative studies can do end up being very much more narrow, much more biologically, and much more in bed with the interest of the pharmaceutical industry. So those two two folks came together to, to create this new world that we have. Let's take an example, like let's look at the emergence of Prozac, for example. I know you talk about that in your in your book. Um, tell us how that, that plays out, because we have this really strong message that depression is a neurochemical, biological imbalance in the brain, and here's this pill that's going to correct it for you. So if you look at sadness... Um, as an example, there's many different sort of frames through which you could look at it. You can look at it through a biological frame. Um, you can look at it through a childhood frame. It's, it's left over from to unresolved griefs and conflicts of childhood. You can look at it through a, a, a much more family frame. It's related to problems within the family that would make anybody sad, and you can expand that out to society. It's related to a political order that uh, puts people in very alienated situations, and anybody that's alive would be a sad. You can look at it through a creative frame. Um, it's a sort of a kind of sensitivity that allows people to tune into aspects of the world that people that don't have that, that capacity miss out on, just like 
other artists can see colors much more vividly than people who aren't artists. You can look at it through a spiritual frame. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a passage through, you know, what can be called a dark night of the soul towards another higher level of consciousness. There's all these different frames that are out there to, that can be used to think about someone's sadness. And they all have something to them. They all have a rich tradition um, behind them, and there's all something valuable about them. Um, but each one is limited. So if you, if you pick one frame, and that frame is biology, and, that, and, the, and the confluence of that interest in that frame is not only the scientists who study it, but the pharmaceutical industry that's going to make a gaboodle out of everybody thinking about themselves through that frame, then you have this sort of huge cultural influence. And, well, Prozac is sort of the signifier of that. But it, was, it wasn't just Prozac. It was the combination of Prozac and Zoloft and Paxil and Celexa and Cymbalta and Lexapro and all, those, all those, those medications competing with each other, creating the same narrative that it's all in your brain. As the, as the only sort of, or the most important way to think about it. You mentioned the word sadness, because when we talk about sadness, well, sadness is sadness, but then, like, the word sadness has kind of been replaced by depression, and so it, it makes me think of the word fear has sort of been replaced by the word anxiety. So if you think about fear and sadness, I, I get a much richer kind of human sense of someone living a life and when i think about depression and anxiety i get more of a sense of like a machine that's breaking down or some sort of like you know disturbance in a in a signal that you're receiving through a television transmitter or something like that um, so the language is really really important here part of the early critiques of psychiatry um, rd lang particular sort of that this medicalized approach takes the human meaning out of it so that it just becomes a broken brain. You know, you're depressed, you're broken, um, like the way your carburetor might be broken or you're, you're in panic. But there's no, there's no, what are you depressed about? There's no aboutness to it. And yeah, and there are reasons why one becomes the central way that society thinks about something, because if you're sad or afraid about work or about war or about, you know, the, uh, the power dynamics in your family, these kinds right. of things aren't, you know, there's not a big market for selling products for changing the world. The pharmaceutical industry is certainly, it's, there's no market for them. I do think that if these other frames are going to stay alive somehow. People need to, to think about how to develop the market for them and use some of the strategies that the pharmaceutical industry and others in marketing have done to sort of bring people into that way of thinking about themselves. I think there is a market out there. I just don't think it's been developed. You know, it hasn't been tapped and developed and nursed. You know, the, there wasn't a, there's not a market for uh, broken brains either. That's before it's. I mean, you know, there's a there's a there's a possibility of a market, but it has to be nurtured and developed and and sort of sort of created through all this marketing work. It has happened in Japan just recently. That nobody wanted to think about themselves as having a broken brain. In Japan, and within a few years, the pharmaceutical industry has been able to just shift that way of thinking to something much more similar to what what, what you see here. Uh, yeah, I don't even think 
there was a word for depression, and then they were able to just kind of create this uh, cultural phenomenon of soul sickness and sort of mar- market the idea that there is this problem out there that people have and that now you need our product to deal with the problem. You can't just say that the biological frame is bad science. You've got to do all this work to sort of help people, this grassroots work to help people inhabit these new frames. And I think there's like a market for the Icarus sort of approach, which um, I think brilliantly stays open to all these different frames. It's one of the things that's most brilliant. About. Not, I mean, it tends to emphasize the, the creative and the political frames um, and, and some of the more spiritual frames, um, but it, it's open to all the frames. And I think that's where it's, it's, it's genius is, is that it, it's sort of, it's, it's helping create a network of people that don't have to sort of inhabit a single frame, but that are open to the questions of what are the different frames. To think yeah. About. If people haven't checked out the forums on the Icarusproject.net, I mean, it's this rich seething mass of just all these different creative ideas of people just taking, going so many different directions about what it means to have a, a crisis or a manic state or whatever language you want to use and then sort of discussing, well, how do I interpret this? How do I explain this? How do I bring in literature and nutrition and holistic health and trauma and, you know, psychoanalysis and political radical anarchism and permaculture and just all these different things? It's a really amazingly um, creative Space and what they have in common is they have is, is 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 not that they 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 they've picked a, an answer that they all agree on. It's that they're all interested in the questions, exactly. and then and and the possibility of how those questions. I mean, it's one. It's not just about under. You know, how do you understand? But how do those and how do those different answers take you into a future? Right. And so it's, it's the question is is much more alive when you when you put it. Not only how do I understand what's going on, but how do these different ways provide paths forward for me? Exactly. Then it, it gets really alive. And, and so a community where people are opening to all those, those possibilities. So if I think about myself one way, what are the implications for my future and how does that help me and what can that contribute to society? And I think one of the most exciting perspectives for, for me in the, Icarus, um, in the Icarus community is the idea of, of linking mental diversity and people's experiences with madness with the idea of, of permaculture and how do we you know make a sustainable society and bring it into the, the larger discussion of the bigger global changes that we all need to go through i mean that's where it really gets really really interesting to me personally no i i i'm with you totally i mean i i think that blending of a political metaphor that there's there's something about the culture that's that's a miss that 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 people are sensitive to with the ecological metaphor that people are picking up on the unsustainability of our current political structures and blending those together into a new kind of subjectivity where sustainability isn't a hair shirt um you know, sort of world of denial, but is this rich world of possibility and connection and creativity and all kinds of, of ways to live a rich life that don't necessarily involve a lot of carbon use. Right? Exactly. The, the idea that of healing, not as a, a boring thing that you kind of do to deprive yourself and you're sort of stuck in a hospital 
somewhere healing, but actually healing is being in a vibrant, creative community where you're gardening and spending time with your neighbors and there's children and animals and you're just sort of like reinventing the city or reinventing the com community around wholeness and around healing and around what it actually takes to make people be sustainable and healthy in their, in their minds. Uh, Brad, you, you mentioned the, this whole sort of difficulty of using the science against the science, and I want to kind of focus in on that a little bit because I think that this is one of the um, the trade-offs or the, the strategic choices that a lot of the survivor movement, the um, the MAD movement, the MAD pride movement has um, has made is the idea that okay, there's a there's sort of physical illnesses over here, and you know if you have a broken leg or something, you know that really okay, we can look at that in an x-ray and that's a real that's like a real real science over there but over here you know we have these mental experiences and you know no one can really put that under an x-ray no one can really do a brain scan there's no hard science here it doesn't really hold up and i mean i know that this is one of the most important messages that the um the movement is putting out there because so many people have bought into this propaganda this message this um this myth coming from biological science that says look the brain is just broken and it's got chemical imbalances and you just have to take our pill our product to fix that but there's a there's a problem with elevating one kind of science at the same time that you you say that psychiatry doesn't measure up to that science let's talk a little bit about your your thoughts about that well i mean a lot of the legacy of that in the mad pride movement i think comes from thomas saws and that, that was really his saws was a dissident psychiatrist who wrote in the 50s and 60s and has continued to write all the way up into recent times and he was trained in a, in a used the philosophy of science to critique psychiatry, which said that if if you if if you can't um, see it, then it's not legitimate. And you you can see a broken uh, bone, but you can't see a broken brain. So therefore, it's a it's an inappropriate extension of that metaphor, and so it becomes just a myth um, that's meaningless. There's no a broken brain. A broken bone is meaningful, but a broken brain is meaningless. That's that's one legacy of it. And to try to, I mean, to to tr like this whole idea that we have a chemical imbalance, um, which is sort of the the next step from broken brain. Broken brain sort of gets watered down to chemical imbalance because with chemical imbalance, people don't. Aren't, aren't aren't looking to see it quite as much but it's like the idea that genetic abnormality kind of gets watered down to genetic predisposition it sounds a little bit more palatable a little bit more sophisticated but it's essentially the same kind of message right and so one 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 strategy in the mad pregnant is to say that there's no science of chemical imbalance and and that's and that's pretty good strategy in the sense that it, it is it is hard to get a reputable scientist to say that there's a chemical imbalance um, it, 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 when, you, when you get right down to the details of it. Yeah, that ten, 10 years ago, there was a real, it was a real dogma and you would never hear a mainstream critique. But now, actually, in, in 2009, there's much, much more coming out. It's much, much more understood that that sort of scientific claim of mental illnesses are just brain disorders is actually kind of being discredited to some degree and recognized for not holding up from a kind of laboratory perspective. Right. But 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 it those critiques don't have very much power because 
the metaphor of the broken brain or the chemical imbalance is the central metaphor of the whole biological model. And so you can't, just a few critiques of it from with, from within the science is not going to change this whole paradigm. So one problem with idealizing the science is that you can think that truth is all you need, right? That all you, all you got to do is show people, look, it's not, it's more complicated than this, <laughs> you know. But it, it, won't, it doesn't work that way. You can't, you can't. Science won't change science that way, it, it, because it's all caught up in a whole social structure. So you end up, from a movement standpoint, getting a certain amount of of success by using the science against the science. So, for example, when you start to have medical doctors and researchers saying, well, actually, the brains of African-Americans are just as intelligent as the brains of um, white Europeans. And you start to get um, psychologists saying, well, actually, homosexuality doesn't have this kind of disorder, abnormality, disease quality to it, or, or people saying, well, actually, women are not less morally capable than men because of their biologies or their reproductive systems, this sort of like quack, quack, crackpot science, you do get a certain amount of success from your move for your movement from an identity politics perspective. But you're saying that ultimately that can actually limit the effectiveness of the movement in the long term. It has to be strategic, basically. If you if you connect that sort of science with a social movement, then um, you can create tremendous change. Um, I mean, I think that's a big part of how the social movements, the new social movements for women and blacks and gays and lesbians have, there's a connection of this sort of um, scientific critique with the social movement, but it's the connection with the social movement that's key. It's not the science alone. There was science long that, that critiqued sort of social Darwinism, which was the sort of bad science that much of the social hierarchy lived ran on. I mean, that critique goes way back, you know, to the early century, but it wasn't until the 70s and the 60s when it got connected with the social movement that this sort of whole social Darwinism sort of thing begins to tumble. But that's not the end of the game, right? The game continues. And, I mean, even now there's efforts to begin to shore up the social Darwin sort of ideas through, as you were saying, genetics, sort of the rise, the, the return of genetic, genetics is, is, you know, it was critiqued as eugenics. Eugenics was critiqued, but there's a new sort of genetics that, that sort of brings aspects of eugenics in the back door through the, some of these ideas of predisposition that you're talking about. So that I guess the, 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 the short point there is see science as an argument that may be useful for your cause but don't idealize it and recognize that it too is a human product, just like other arguments. Brad, let's take the example of feminism. There's an argument um, that um, you know that women should be men, women should be equals with men because psychologically, scientifically, um, biologically, there's just no evidence that men are more intelligent or more capable or you know, should be, you know, elevated in any way from any kind of scientific standpoint that that actually um, there's a basis for equality. And so that seems to be very successful from a movement strategic standpoint. But then there are also some costs to that. There's some kind of like there's a downside to that, that the movement should be thinking about strategically. Equality feminism um, rode, you know, rode with some of that science. 
But at the same time, that doesn't get you all the way there because it leaves out all kinds of issues beyond equality, such as really rethinking gender norms and the idea that masculine values of being strong and being tough and being objective and being hard and being unemotional are somehow better than feminine values of being soft and being um, cooperative and being um, gentle and being intuitive and being emotional. Um, those are all, all those are human values, and um, the idea that some of them are better than others um, creates a warped world, and there needs to be a rethinking of how to balance our values rather than just giving sort of masculine values some sort of tip of, 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 of priority. Um, and the science isn't, wasn't helpful with any of that, so that it, it still locks you into a very sort of limited part of the issues at stake. So the result is, well, we can all be equal, but we all have to be kind of equal, but we have to put these masculine, competitive, aggressive sort of values above the other values, but we can all be equal doing them, so women and men become interchangeable, but in a very narrow uh, identity, in a sense. To some degree, they have to adopt, to be equal, they have to adopt the masculine values, which weren't questioned, because it was just the, you know, the, the women's biology was equal to men's biology, but the whole value structure that uh, went with men and masculinity wasn't questioned so to be equal to get to get a to get a job in the very masculine world you have to be as tough as um the male males who are already there you still that with hillary clinton i mean she um is competing for president but she's uh, having to be as tough as anybody out there and was very worried about um, showing a feminine side, which is it's interesting because there there is a market for feminine values. I mean, she she, she you know it was when she cried that she got this huge boost in the electorate. So in some ways there was a misjudging on her part of sort of the desire to see the feminine values in um, public life. Um, but I suspect she's right uh, on a larger scope that if if she had showed much femininity. Um, she would have been seen as less than and, 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 and not a viable candidate. If you're just tuning in, this is Madness Radio. We're speaking with Bradley Lewis. He's professor at NYU, and he is the author of Moving Beyond Prozac, DSM, and the New Psychiatry, The Birth of Post-Psychiatry. And we're speaking about mad pride and mad science. So bringing it back to um, Mad Pride, there's a, a big discussion that's going on in the realm of disability studies of, well, do we want to just have equal access to a normative society or do we want to question what's normal to, to begin with? The issue of madness and sanity overlaps here in the sense that there are a sort of unquestioning prioritization of quote-unquote sane values um, and narrowing down of which kinds of subjectivity are acceptable because they fall within this sort of very narrow sane category, which nobody can fit into because... Humans are much more complicated than that, and so there needs to be a much more expanding out of these of these these, these different values that get associated with madness and sanity. 
Do you think we see this in the recent um, the consumer movement, which is kind of like the first um, wave of the successes of the MAD movement and the way in which the emphasis is on recovery and getting people to, to work and that you know, we're just the same as everybody else? In the consumer movement, I think there's, there's, there's um, aspects of that. I mean, I think in recovery, there's struggles over what's recovery going to mean. I mean, I think the, the recovery movement really begins in many ways with the mad pride activism. And for them, it really did have within it sort of an element of social change it, it, as, as much as it did about sort of opening up opportunities in within a, 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 a sane world, basically. We had a cultural anthropologist, Biela Coleman, on the show recently, yeah. and she talked a lot about the history of the origins of the Mad Pride movement. It came from a very radical um, you know, ferment of the left and all these different kinds of questionings. And then it kind of becomes more and more reformist as it becomes more successful, which is kind of what right. all movements do. But it does have that, that origin in a much broader questioning and a much broader challenging of social values. And I think, I think that the, reco- the, the recovery movement is, has within it quite a bit of um, really sort of serious rethinking of um, some of the social norms, but at the same time, it's being sort of channeled through sort of the pharmaceutical industry and sort of biopsychiatry to be a much more watered down kind of thing, which um, gets closer to fighting stigma and it's not a bad thing to be on your medications. And just because you have a broken brain doesn't mean you're not a good person. Right. And it's a disease like any other disease. And we shouldn't discriminate against people with cancer or people with diabetes in the workplace. So if you have a diagnosis of schizophrenia or bipolar, you should be um, fitting into the equal norm rather than saying, let's make space for mental diversity. Let's question how narrow workplaces are? Why is it that you can't cry at your workplace? Why is it that people are not allowed to be um, flexible in their the way that they use their time? Why is it I can't be productive on some days and unproductive on on others? Um, those kinds of bigger questions aren't really addressed. And they're, they're kind of also starting to be looked at from the standpoint of disability studies and disability in general, right? I mean, and that gets back to your question about the whole sort of medical science is good. Um, mental science is bad. I mean, even medical science is a human product, and it too can be deeply problematic. And so much of the the work in disability studies um, and disability rights is about um, showing the limits of a medical model that sort of abstracts out all the other possible variables at play in uh, what it means to have a different body and what where the suffering of that different body comes from. So if you take a much more social model, the issue is not so much that people with different bodies need to change. It's more like that the society needs to accommodate difference. Nice. I mean, one example that I, sometimes comes up in class is imagine that your arms um, just go forward and uh, say they're they're attached to your um, your your trunk, you know, and you've got a really bad back itch. Um, you know, that's so. Like one solution to that would be to sort of 
break your arms apart and <laughs> stretch them around and maybe connect them to some sort of electronic device that would turn around and scratch at your back. You know, you, it's, a, it's a personal tragedy. This person can't scratch their back. It's an individual tragedy. It's just, it's just happened to them. Um, but, you know, what happens if you take a bunch of people like that and put them in a circle and let them scratch each other's back? You know, there's, there's, there's all kinds of ways that we can make social changes that um, are appreciative of diverse bodies and get us out of this idealization that everybody's got a singular kind of body anyway. Um, yeah, I think this is happening in the deaf community and in the autistic community that people are saying, well, do we want to you know, recover our hearing? Do we want to train ourselves to not be autistic or actually is autism or what gets called autism or what gets called deafness? Actually, are these just different ways of being in the world that might actually have, you know, positive, rich qualities to them that people actually want to express more rather than just becoming like everybody else? Well, that's right. I mean, it, it, when, when you leave out all these people, I mean, like New York City, I mean, that's what the whole access, accessibility issue is about. Like, I live in New York City, and to travel around on public transportation, you have to basically be an athlete. Not, not only can you not be in a wheelchair, you can't even have a limp. I mean, the, what it requires to move around the city requires a very narrow kind of body. So that means that there's that there's all kinds of people that are left out of tra- of traveling around the city. The broader social body loses out on that kind of participation, and it loses out because it's scared to death that it too is going to become you know not able to do that, and so it's going to be left out too. Um, so you, the, the the broader society hurts itself in lots of ways by not opening itself up to difference in this way. Um, but there, you, you really begin to design a world with the idea in mind that not everybody has this mythical normate body, and even if they do, they're not going to have it for very long um, because we're all just temporary. Even if you have that mythical athletic male body, you won't have it for very long because we're all, you know, getting um, older every day. And so you can design it. If you begin to sort of realize that there's a big problem with the social organization that doesn't take into account that bodies come in a lot of different shapes and sizes and capacities and that they're all human and we want to create a world that's as inclusive as possible of that diversity, um, then, you know, let the imagination run free. There's a bazillion ways to do it. The problem is recognizing let's do it. And I think this parallels with um, mad pride in the sense of, well, are we trying to get people to be more in control and more normal and more um, reserved and more fitting our sense of what it is to be, you know, a sane person? Or are humans actually on a continuum and do people who are maybe at the extreme of that continuum really just reflect the fact that all of us need a lot more space to be expressive emotionally and to have our different states of consciousness and to have our different moods and our different emotions and that actually what needs to change is not you know let's fix the broken people but um, let's um, get a society that's much more tolerant and inviting and accepting of the different kinds of mental states that people go through exactly and 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 if that kind of social change is a long ways off while you're working at it, 
begin to create these networks and spaces, these, you know, if it, it, you know I sometimes use the, the river analogy. If the mainstream is going to be hard to change or isn't going to change anytime soon, there's all kinds of fun that can happen in the eddies and currents over in the sideways and the byways. So, I mean, to me, that, that brings back to Icarus in a way. That, so that it's simultaneously working towards social change, but it's not waiting for a revolution to create these networks and spaces where that kind of interaction with difference um, can already can happen now. You know, you screw the mainstream. <laughs> um, they're not changing, they're not changing, but you don't have to wait. Brad, I wanted to ask you just about this idea of, of mad pride itself, because there, you know, the um, the idea of being proud of suffering. I mean, we often, you know, we talk about madness in a lot of different ways, but usually we're talking about in individual suffering of some kind that there's um, some distress or some difficulty, and people are trying to change or grow. I mean, if you are gay, you are really happy to, you know, to be who you are and to be in the world that accepts who you are. But if you're diagnosed with schizophrenia, your goal might be to stop being both diagnosed and also stop going through the crisis that and the suffering that's associated with that. So how does the idea of mad pride itself represent some difference, some, some difficulties in the comparison with gay pride? A big part of what Mad Pride is trying to do as a, as a, as a linguistic construction is do something that Gay Pride and Black Pride um, also did, which is to take something that's low, something that's denigrated, something that's seen as less than or inferior, uh, and flip it um, and show how there's many ways in which that it's high, it's better than it's um, um, more valuable than what was considered high. This flipping of values from what was low to what was high is a necessary step, many people argue, towards a possibility of sort of really equalizing value. And well, the first question that people often say is, well, why can't um, we just say that the playing field, feminine values are just as good as masculine values and we, d we don't have to go through a period of sort of celebrating feminine values, say. And it's because there's been all these years of denigrating um, the what was low that there has to be a time of celebrating um, that in order to begin to get to a, a period of possible sort of equality of value. Yeah, it's like having a period of pride as a way of healing the shame that has taken place. Yeah, it makes me think of the debate around gay marriage. I mean, I'm all in favor of gay marriage and legalization of of people of the same gender marrying each other, but it, for me it questions why marriage? Why should marriage be the standard of the of the insider and this, the you've reached the top when you've got a marriage and you've got this some um, stable domestic so-called stable so-called domestic uh, um, you know love thing and actually maybe um, the kinds of radical sexuality and radical relationships that have been associated with the gay movement actually could point the way to you know different kind of of love and a different kind of being together that we don't have to just fight for equality in the normal mainstream. Yeah, yeah, the, the possibilities that uh, we could have partnerships and communal um, connections beyond sort of the dyad 
really begins to help us reimagine the world and potentially reimagine forms of living that are much more sustainable because this dyad unit creates everybody's got to have their own freaking wash machine and their own car. Like, yeah, it's very consumerist in a lot of ways, the marriage ideal. To me, Icarus shifts mad pride to the, to the frame of dangerous gift. And I think, I think, I think that's a, to me, that's important work because as valuable as mad pride is to recognize that aspects of what's denigrated can often be a, a kind of, of, of something that's valuable. There's the danger there is to romanticize it and to um, therefore uh, have a blind eye to, as you're saying, the kinds of suffering that can come with um, the diversity, particularly in a world that doesn't appreciate psychic diversity. Well, I think there's a parallel there with um, the gay pride movement because it took a while for the gay movement and the larger community to recognize that, well, actually there is domestic violence between same-gender couples and, um, you know, the lot of, just because you're gay and you are living in alternative reality doesn't mean that you're somehow that we should just romanticize that right. that actually the same problems exist and the same suffering is there and it needs to be looked at and i think it's even more strongly kind of the case with the my idea of mad pride because i mean most people do identify really strongly with the um the suffering that is associated with having that different kind of way of being in the world it's hard for us to get in touch with the gift part of it we tend to more lean towards identifying with the danger uh, part of it. Dangerous gifts brings together the there is elements of this that allow one to see and be and access parts of the world that wouldn't be available otherwise. Uh, and yet at the same time, um, as you were saying, it can be a difficult road to hoe and can require its own kind of tending and choreography to navigate. Um, the, that particular um, capacity. The other identity movements, black power, um, gay pride, are basically saying, look, we have this oppressive system. If you will just leave us alone and let us you know, be ourselves and let us be equals and stop oppressing us, then we can just you know, flourish and express ourselves. But actually with mad pride, it's not such a simple equation that you have an oppressor and an oppressed. I mean, you absolutely do. I mean, I'm against forced treatment and the you know abuses of medication and the institutionalization and the whole system is an oppressive system in a lot of ways but there also is just this experience of suffering of madness of crisis of whatever it is that people go through and people need help and that kind of has been missing from the identity politics equation it's kind of like let's get rid of the system rather than saying well actually how do we take care of ourselves because we do need something that we you know can't just sort of get from our own independent identity the way that the women's movement or the gay movement or the black movement have been able to to present so it's a lot more complicated with with mad pride i think to use the idea of pride in some of the new social movements you know there had to be a fight against a biological logic that said people were inferior so that happens in psychic difference but it but the ante is raised because people met this biology in sort of this abstract way they rarely met it in the in in the other new social movements in the form of a clinical encounter where the person has the authority to coerce and constrain and lock up right so 
there is this additional element of coercion that happens in the clinical encounter where the person who's uh, has this sort of authority of science can say you um, can no longer be part of society um, and, 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 and that's where Thomas Sawes continues I think just to be really sort of spot on his emphasis that that happens without any due process you know we, we live in a country where normally they can't take you out of society unless a you've done something wrong and B you have some sort of serious due process where there's a jury and a peers and all this kind of stuff. Whereas in this section, you can be taken out of society, A, just because they think you might do something wrong, right, not right. because you've done anything, because they think you might, and B, with very little due process, some very sort of limited due process that they have to go through, much different than the due process in the, in the other system. So so that, that's a, that, that direct encounter with the power of the sort of scientific sort of legitimacy of the medical establishment to take people out, as it were, against their will, is a, is a dimension of, of this social movement, this struggle that uh, was less, much, much less um, prevalent in the other new social movements. Yeah, and I think in the other movements, too, you sort of have a, a naturalness or an inner reality that you in- encounter, and, you know, being a queer man i just discover inside of myself when i'm a kid that hey i you know i'm attracted to to boys as well as girls here and i mean that's just who i am it's always who i've been but with madness um you have something that's much more confusing um sometimes people even don't even think there's a problem at all but someone else thinks there's a problem and then they maybe be hauled in to a hospital or they may find themselves in front of a doctor and then the identity of other the identity of okay you have a disorder you are a mental patient you are this person who's different that's given to us or imposed on us and it's something that comes from the outside but it still has an inner quality because the person does feel like they're struggling with something or that they don't really understand that they have this crisis um and but there's that external locus of the identity itself which is of course driven by pharmaceutical companies and the science and everything we've been talking about so it makes it a very different kind of experience of where the identity comes from and as a result a lot of times people just drop the identity once they feel better and stronger they're like whoa i was diagnosed with x y and z but I, that is not who i am i'm going to bury that and move on which doesn't tend to happen with being gay or being a woman or being black i mean that's just part of who you are the idea of, of leaving the identity behind isn't even thinkable well the, the i mean irvin goffman Use the phrase the degradation ritual. In the, uh, I, I like that phrase. You know, like 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 you say. I mean, people often don't sort of discover this sort of within themselves so much, or within, say, a cultural community. Um, it, it's forced upon them outside through a psychiatric diagnosis, which he called a degradation ritual. I think that the gay experience gets a little closer to this at least because it was only it was only just a few years ago that um, this part of yourself that um, is attracted to same sex if I took that part of myself to the clinics then I would go through a degradation ritual of oh that's a sickness just 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 a few 
decades ago, right? And so, so that it it now that's less likely to happen, considerably less likely to happen, although not impossible that it can still happen. Well, I like that parallel because it suggests that you know if someone is going through something powerful inside of themselves, terrible sadness, intense energy, or they're in some kind of you know mental different state, and then hopefully the one of the goals of the movement I think is that when people kind of come out with that, they would be met not with a degradation ritual, but with a questioning and like, okay, well, this is happening to you. You know, how do you want to identify yourself? I mean, maybe you're, are you a shaman? Are you an artist? Are you a trauma survivor? Are you someone who feels like they just have nutritional problems? Or that's one of the things that we've tried to create with Icarus and Freedom Center and the work that we're doing is to create a space where people can say, okay, what's going on with me and what's the most useful way for me to identify myself rather than having it being imposed or coerced or pressured on you that, oh, you should see yourself this way because this is what the science says and this is what you need to do. I know that's the grail. I really, I agree. That's the grail. That's, I mean, I think that's the cultural change that, you know, it's so critical. And when you, and when you see, I mean, I meet students who've gone through the degradation ritual and they come to me and say, you know, this happened to me. It turns out I have blank and I'm going to have to do this all my life. I have to drop out of school and take medications and go to a day hospital because, you know, I'm defective. And, and, and I have, you know, thought about this forever and I, on a one-on-one thing, I, there's very little that I can say to a student like that, because it just, it just, it would just be me against sort of all the stuff that they've been told that has all this authority. But, but, the, but, but if there is a, like a, a social network like the Icarus, I can say, you know, have you, you know, that's wow. Why don't you? They know there's a meeting tonight of some folks who've been really interested in these issues, and I think they're going to read poetry, and I think I think that there's going to there's a potluck, and and then there's going to be some music, you know, all, and like they go into this world where people like have bounced all these ideas around, and 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 sort of put that in a, that that degradation ritual in this perspective of all this other stuff, and like just it, it, the world changes instantly right you know but 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 it, but you can't without that community without growing that network and community it's really hard to help people sort of see that that's that's one way to look at it but boy it's got all kinds of problems associated with it yeah i i, I couldn't agree more i mean one of the difficulties has been if someone comes up to you and says oh well i'm diagnosed i i am bipolar i i was in a crisis when i was a teenager and they told me that I was bipolar and now I'm bipolar and now I take meds. I think the idea of having a place like the Icarus Forums or having hearing voices groups or Freedom Center, all the different support groups around the country where people can come and they can say, hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm bipolar, and no one's going to attack them or criticize them because it's such a deep experience. But at the same time, they will be in a context, a social network, exactly as you described, that's presenting all these opportunities for them to gradually rethink what they're going through and maybe they will pick up a book and they'll pick up something that that um, someone has written or they'll listen to somebody or they'll have a friend and then at that moment a light bulb may go off and they may suddenly say whoa I'm going to toss that identity aside and I'm going to take up this new identity or maybe it'll be a slower more gradual 
process. Or they'll complicate, they'll just complicate that identity and develop a hybrid identity. That, that, <laughs> yeah, they'll come up with something that nobody's thought of before. That's why, like, the, I mean, the work, that's why I'm so impressed with the work that, you know, you've been part of is sort of building these, these alternative networks and spaces where that could happen. It's so valuable. So, Brad, let us know your, the name of your book and how people can get in touch with you if they want to. The name of the book is Moving Beyond Prozac, DSM, and the New Psychiatry, The Birth of Post-Psychiatry, which is kind of this world that we've been talking about today. Bradley Lewis, thank you for joining us on Madness Radio. Oh, my pleasure, Will. You've been listening to an interview with Bradley Lewis. He is a professor at New York University's Gallatin School of Individualized Study. Brad is a psychiatrist and cultural theorist. And he's the author of Moving Beyond Prozac, DSM, and the New Psychiatry, The Birth of Post-Psychiatry. Brad is also an organizer with the Icarus Project at NYU. That's all the time we have this week on Madness Radio. Thanks a lot for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio broadcasts every Tuesday, 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern, on Pacifica Affiliates WXOJLPFM, Northampton, Massachusetts, and KWMD Kasilov and Anchorage, Alaska. Co-produced by peer-run mental health communities freedom-center.org and theicarusproject.net. Madness Radio is hosted by Will Hall. Music producer is John Rice, with technical assistance from Jeremy Lansman. Listen to our internet stream, podcasts, and show archives at madnessradio.net. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, to help get us broadcast on a station near you, or if you just want to share what's in your head, contact radio at madnessradio.net.